I believe that where there's a will, there's a way that even if you maybe philosophical differences about, you know, the size of government or whether or not government should be active or, or passive, there's, there's always a way to find common ground on something. We just have to have that primary focus of wanting to compromise, wanting to find that common ground and we can do it. All Inclusive, a podcast on inclusion, innovation, and social justice with Jay Ruderman. Hi, I'm Jay Ruderman, and this is All Inclusive, a podcast focused on inclusion, innovation, and social justice. Today in the podcast, I have the privilege and honor to speak with Congressman Jim Langevin, who's been serving as the United States Representative for Rhode Island's 2nd Congressional District for 20 years, since 2001. Jim has been very active in many different areas, for example, cybersecurity readiness and matters relating to our armed services. But in this conversation, we'll be focusing on his work on the laws and reforms regarding people with disabilities. This is a topic dear to Jim's heart, as he is also the first quadriplegic to serve in the U.S. House of Representatives. Hi, Jim. Happy to have you here, and welcome to my podcast. So I would like to um, talk to you a little bit about you know what happened uh, at the beginning of 2021, but uh, before I, I get to that, I want to bring you back to a particularly sensitive time in your life, back uh, to, to, uh, to 1980 and a day that changed your life forever. Can you tell me a little bit about what happened to you at that time? Sure. Um, well, early on in my life, my early teenage years, I got involved in a police cadet program in my local community, Warwick, uh, Rhode Island, and uh, really fell in love with, with law enforcement. Uh, from January to June, we would take uh, classes uh, about different aspects of police work. And then in June, the top we'd take a test in the top 10 high scores, uh, got a, a summer job uh, for, the, for the summer. Uh, and I'd been involved with the program for about four years. Again, I thought my career path in life would be would be becoming a police officer. And I hope perhaps maybe day, someday to go on to become an FBI agent. But as life uh, often happens, as other plans for you, and, and that certainly was the case in, in my circumstance. I was uh, getting ready to go on my shift one afternoon. It was a Friday afternoon in August 1980, and uh, walked into the police locker room. I was getting ready to go on my shift. And my uh, fellow cadet and I were talking to two police officers. Uh, one of them had just purchased a new weapon. The other officer asked to look at it. And not realizing it was loaded, the officer pulled the trigger, uh, and there was a bullet already in the in the pipe of the gun. And... Uh, the gun went off, bone off, and uh, ricocheted off a locker, went through my neck, and unfortunately, it severed my spinal cord. Uh, and I've been paralyzed ever since. I, ca I can't even imagine um, what you went through on a personal level. Um, can you tell us how you went from that incident, which obviously changed your life, uh, to your involvement in politics? Well, uh I was very fortunate to have an incredible community that that rallied behind my family and I at a time when I well we needed it the most, and uh, it made a, a profound difference. And I no doubt I recovered uh, because of my family, my faith, and my community, and those three things coming together provided an incredible support system that 
that gave me the the confidence to and the you know the the really desire to want to recover and do something positive with my life. I saw how a community could make a difference in someone's life when you had a group of people coming together with a single-minded determination to make a difference in someone's life uh, and how it could affect change. And, and um, as I said, I wanted to get back if I ever could. Someone had suggested that I, I might think about getting involved in public service in, in, in government or politics uh, at some point. And someone suggested I run, and I, I thought about it, and I did. In the course of doing that, I found that not only uh, did I feel like I was giving back, but I also found something that I, that I really enjoyed and started to develop a new new passion for. I served as both delegate and secretary of the Constitutional Convention. Then a couple of years later, the opportunity came about for me to run for state representative for a, for a state rep that was retiring in my neighborhood. I ran and uh, was elected, and I served in the General Assembly as a state rep for six years, and uh, and then was on the ballot statewide to run for secretary of state and uh, was elected there and, and served uh, there as Secretary of State for the next, uh, next six years before running for Congress. So, Jim, let's talk about politics, because you've been involved in politics for a long time, and you've been in Congress for a long time. Tell us how Congress has changed, particularly the interaction between the parties and, and, and how it was when you first got into Congress and how it is in today's Congress. Yeah, so Congress certainly has has changed uh, a lot. It's become more partisan, unfortunately. Uh, I, I thought it was, you know, pretty could be pretty contentious uh, when I first arrived, and that was the year that, of course, uh, Al Gore was defeated uh, for president by by George W. Bush, and uh, that was certainly a big disappointment because after the uh, the eight years of of President Clinton and you know, seeing a balanced budget and, and uh, budget surplus as far as the eye could see, uh, saw great prospects for, you know, things that could be done for the country uh, with many of those policies continuing. Unfortunately, uh, that didn't happen. It was, uh, it was George Bush that was elected president, but, you know, he was president. I went to the inauguration. I was honored to be there, and I said, well, it's a new day, and we're going to, you know, make the most of it. And I pride myself on, on solving problems, wanting to solve problems anyway, and and finding common sense solutions to, to issues that, that are affecting families or my community. And the, the process was more partisan than I had expected. <laughs> to be honest with you, now, looking back you know, 20 years ago, those are the good old days, comparison right. to how, how partisan it's become now, unfortunately. I, I know you're a very well-respected member of Congress and, and especially liked by um, members of your party. Do you have interactions with uh, Republicans um, on a day-to-day basis in, on Capitol Hill? I do. And and I pride myself on being one of the most bipartisan members of Congress, at least I would like to think I am. Although I have differences with many of my Republican colleagues, on every major issue that I'm working on, I can point to Republican that I'm, that I'm working with. And things like cybersecurity, which is a, it's been, I spent a lot of time on that issue, on career and technical education, uh, and on, on things like disabilities issues. I've got someone like uh, Don Young or Kathy McMorris-Rogers uh, that, uh, that I work with on issue, or, or Susan Collins across the aisle on the, on the, on the Senate side. Uh, she and I recently worked on a, a lifespan respite care bill together. So a lot of the, you know, the, the bipartisanship doesn't get covered in the press. Uh, unfortunately, I guess it's those, you know, the old saying, if it doesn't bleed, it doesn't lead. It's not controversial. We have, uh, you know, members of Congress working together. It seems unfortunate that doesn't get 
adequate coverage, but it, it does happen. And, and I'm not the only one, right? There are other members of Congress that uh, we've worked together and even the, the, the CARES Act funding and other bills that uh, many of them were, were bipartisan. So I, I do have, um, I want to get into some issues of disability, but before I do that, just to, um, because I'm personally very interested in politics and, and follow it very closely. Obviously, you're a member of the Democratic Party, which is now uh, controls uh, both houses of Congress and, and the presidency. How do you view as someone who's on the inside, um, what is happening in the Republican Party? You mentioned um, Leader McCarthy, who is uh, today meeting with former President Trump. Uh, it seems like there's a attention within that party about which direction it's going to go in. What are your insights into that? Yeah, no doubt there is uh, tension in the Republican Party and almost uh, you know, the divisions on either side. You have the traditional Republicans, the, the Ronald Reagan Republicans uh, that you know believe in smaller government, lower taxes. Uh, and then you've got the uh, the Trump Republicans that uh, in many ways just want to, you know, they don't, they don't, respect the, the norms of politics and process and in many ways have tried to you know, break those old norms and, and would, would rather break the system rather than fix the system or work within it. And it's, and it's caused a real, uh, any real damage to the, the, the core foundations of our democracy. And it really uh, came to a head on, uh, on January 6th when uh, the, uh, there was this angry mob that stormed at the Capitol and uh, tried to overthrow the government. So I want to talk a little bit about that um, on January 6th during the insurrection. Were you inside the Capitol building? And what was it like for you during while it was unfolding? I was not in the Capitol, thankfully. I was actually in my office watching the proceedings on, on television from my office. And there were only 44 members of the House and the Senate that allowed on the floor at any one time. Uh, and that was because of coronavirus. So we were, they were going to rotate us in throughout the day. And I hadn't uh, gotten the go-ahead to, to head over yet. Uh, around 2 o'clock or so, the House went into recess a couple of times. It was a little odd. I didn't realize they you know, did, they didn't, was expecting them to go into recess. But they were supposed to keep going right straight through. Uh, but what wound up happening is that they adjourned or recessed a couple of times. And then we started getting alerts from the Capitol Police, both by email and text, that the Capitol had been breached, uh, lock your doors, shelter in place uh, until the situation gets resolved. Then you put it, we put it turned over to MSNBC and you could see what was happening. The, 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 you know, the angry mob, the, uh, the crowds you know, streaming into the Capitol. Uh, you saw, we saw one woman uh, uh, being brought out on a stretcher. Clearly, uh, there was, uh, some type of wound, we assumed it to be a gunshot, uh, the amount of blood that we could see. Um, and the, the bandaging on the on the wound, uh, it, it was really just horrific and just so sad to to see that this was actually happening live as we were there watching it. But uh, I, I wasn't per se worried. I, I had to believe that I, I believe that the the Capitol Police would eventually get control of the situation. You know, whether it's with just the Capitol Police or you know DC Metro Police being called in or the National Guard, that eventually this you know this insurrection would be squashed and property authorities would take control of the situation, but it was unnerving. There's no doubt to, to be, you know, to be watching this. And uh, it was, it was, it made me both sad uh, and angry at the, at the same time. And because the, the, the further away I get from it, the, the more angry I get that, you know, we could have had 
a, a president of the White House that was basically in, inciting what I see this 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 angry mob, this insurrection. Do you hold former President Trump responsible for what happened? I I do, uh, and I I think Mitch McConnell summed it up uh, the best. You know, the the president assembled the mob, and he. Uh, through his words, uh, incited the the rioters and the, the angry mob. It's what we all witnessed, and uh, your words matter. And President Trump has a a very loyal, hardcore following, and and uh, they took him at his word when he said, you know, you fight like hell. You're never going to take back your government through the weakness. You know, march down to the Capitol. I'll be with you. You know, I it was uh, just so irresponsible and. It just did great damage to our country, and I and I also don't think it's over. Uh, unfortunately, it's uh, you may have heard uh, just last night the Department of Homeland Security has issued a nationwide bulletin, uh, an alert, warning uh, of of possible uh, anti-government activity that that the riot on the on the sixth actually emboldened uh, people that are that are anti-government, and so it, it's it does it does trouble me. So I want to move uh, into the Lifespan Respite Care Act, which you authored in 2002, and it was signed into law in 2006. For the benefit of the listeners, uh, this act authorizes budgets for community-based services for family caregivers of children or adults of all ages with disabilities. As the act's name implies, it eases the burden on family members who take care of their loved ones. How do you feel the act fosters independence and inclusion in society? So the Lifespan Rescue Care Act, is, so I'm very proud to be involved with and have my, my name associated with that act. It goes to directly supporting the, the, the caregivers. Uh, you know, I know uh, how important uh, the people are that take care of me and help me to live an independent life. My CNAs are just invaluable people. And there are many caregivers throughout the country that do this kind of work for a family member, whether it's an elderly parent or a sick child, uh, but they may not have much help and they can easily get overwhelmed and burnt out. You think of it's a, a sole caregiver in a, in a household. Uh, imagine this, this uh, you know, if it's a single parent who is perhaps trying to work, and, you know, keep a roof over the head and food on the table, but at the same time having to care for the elderly parent or the sick child. And do they ever get a, uh, a break? And, and who helps them. So the Lifespan Respite Care Act promotes independence by helping individuals receive the care and supports they need at home. And if we had to put a dollar figure to this uncompensated care, uh, it would probably around, be around, last estimate was around $470 billion in uncompensated care each year. You know, for, for many of these caregivers, access to respite remains elusive. So by promoting access to respite services, we ensure that family caregivers are able to take care of their own needs while continuing the rewarding but often challenging work of assisting their, their loved one. So on a personal level, how did your disability impact your family in the beginning? So it definitely was, was life-altering for my entire family. Um, my parents initially became caregivers themselves, even my uh, my brothers at the, the time. Uh, I had a young sister who came along, believe it or not, just three months before my accident. So, uh, you know, here's my parents dealing with my situation and also having to take care of, a, of an infant. And, and so, you know, it just 
change the di the family dynamics. Certainly, it puts added pressures on areas you didn't think financially and in other ways. Uh, eventually, you know, my mom was was really insistent on this. She realized that if I was going to lead any kind of an independent life, that I was going to have to have help from the outside to to assist me to with my just you know basic daily living needs. Uh, from, you know, getting up in the morning and. You know, showering and uh, getting dressed, and you know, getting out the door, and you know, having a driver so that I could get around to get to places where I need to be. And so that definitely, you know, changed our, our family dynamic. My family was there for me when when I needed them the most, uh, both emotionally but also oh, physically. So, um, I w I'd like to talk about when the when the law first came into existence, and and you first worked on it. You were a fairly new member of Congress. Can you talk about that experience of legislating um, this act when you were when you're fairly new? Yeah. So the original Vice President Care Act was a priority for members of the, the health and disability community around the time that I came to Congress, and uh, it, it also happened to be an issue that then Senator Hillary Clinton was interested in addressing. So uh, certainly, not only could I relate to the the inherent challenges of family caregiving from the, the experiences of my own family after my accident, but I had constituents who, who were facing similar challenges, balancing the responsibilities of caring for a loved one with a chronic condition and taking care of themselves, and they needed help. And, uh, you know, and we were looking for ways of supporting these unsung heroes because in most cases the alternative was more costly uh, institutional care. Um, so it seemed like a win-win to give families the tools uh, to stay together and reduce the cost on the system, but we'd also reduce the pressure on the caregiver themselves. So Hillary led the uh, the, the the Senate version of the bill, and, and I partnered with my House colleagues uh, to lead the uh, the House version. It, it wasn't without its challenges; these programs, because existed in some states, but not for others. It was a kind of a patchwork approach. They were often uh, specific to certain populations, and we were attempting to reproduce the program that worked and uh, expand eligibility to all families and do it in the most efficient and cost of way possible. And that required, of course, educating our colleagues and fighting for programs that uh, may not uh, have been well known at the time. So I want to jump forward to 2019 when you and several other members of Congress uh, wanted to introduce the Lifespan Respite Care Reauthorization Act. Yeah. And I'm just, I'd like to get back to the issue of how you work with with members of, of the other party, of, uh, of the Republican Party, in order to move something like this forward. Yeah. So um, initially, when we first introduced it, I had introduced the bill with my name in the lead. Uh, and then uh, Congressman Mike Ferguson from New Jersey was the Republican uh, lead, but they were in the majority. And so after a couple of years of doing this, uh, it became obvious that the, that the Republicans weren't going to allow the bill to pass with, with the Democrats' name in the, in the lead. So Mike and I spoke. Uh, we agreed to swap order and that his name would be first and I would be second. And lo and behold, we wound up getting the bill passed. So uh, it, for me, it was about getting the issue, you know, uh, passed and acted into law and helping people, and that's what we did. Fast forward now to you know 2019, uh, worked with uh, with colleagues again to to get this bill passed, 
and then Senator Susan Collins was the lead Republican on the on the, the Senate uh, the Senate side. So basically, they we needed to increase the uh, funding levels, the authorized funding levels. Uh, I had wanted to do two hundred million dollar authorization over five years. Uh, we were not able to get that, but uh, Senator Collins' version had a fifty million dollar authorization, and we did that. And basically, the uh, the, the the bill ensures that the Lifespan Respite Care Program continues to be able to expand and enhance respite services across states. Uh, it works to improve coordination and dissemination of respite services, streamline access to programs, uh, fill gaps and service where necessary, and also improve the overall quality of the respite services currently available and can by authorized uh, $10 million a year and funding through 2024. So, you know, we were we, the bill had passed the House, passed the Senate. We had to come up with a, you know, a compromise version. And I, I spoke with Senator Collins, and I, I told her about my history with the bill. And uh, I asked her if she would be okay if my name were in the in the lead this time, since we were both cared passionately about the bill. And and uh, she was gracious, incredibly gracious, and she said, absolutely. That meant a lot to me personally. Um, she didn't have to do that. And uh, but she's a very gracious woman, and and uh, so as a team, we we wound up passing this this bill together, and I'm very much grateful and, and appreciative to her for both her leadership on this, but also working with me so closely to get it across the finish line. So, Jim, in an interview in, on CNN in, in 2018, you said that disabilities have a unique power to unite us. Why do you feel that way? Yeah, because I think every family or every member of Congress. Uh, is directly impacted somehow or another. Either they directly have someone in their family, whether it's a child or a relative that that uh, is dealing with some form of disability, or they certainly have uh, close friends and you know, the maybe children of close friends that that are uh, dealing with a uh, with a disability, and they they understand in some way the aspect of the the challenge uh, and the challenges that are involved. And so, if we pass laws that help to bring down those barriers and improve people's lives, we really have an obligation to, to do it. And that's that was what was so meaningful about the passage of the Americans with Disabilities Act. That that passed because in a bipartisan way, members of Congress came together and said, you know, people with disabilities have the right to live active, independent lives in their communities. The accommodations, reasonable accommodations, shouldn't be just a courtesy, but it should in fact be a civil right. And the the, the Americans with Disabilities Act was the civil rights law of our time, but I know what a profound impact it has had in my own life. I was injured about a full 10 years before the ADA was passed, so I remember what the, the world was like before ADA and what it's been like after ADA, and it's made a profound impact in my life. And, and without it, as I told President Herbert Walker Bush when I met with him and George W. Bush in the in the Oval Office for the, the signing of the Americans with the ADA Amendments Act. I, I thanked him for his leadership for passing and signing the, the, the ADA into law, because without it, I probably most likely would not be in Congress today. So you've said that individuals with disabilities remain one of our nation's greatest untapped resources, and, and certainly politically, with 20% of, of our population in the United States or the world's population, you would think that the disability community would be one of the greatest political forces. But it's not quite there yet. Do you have any feelings on on that? 
Yeah, uh, and the, the, the tens of millions of people with disabilities uh, that, that are out there that can be registered voters, are registered voters, uh, I think could and should have a, a much bigger uh, impact on the political process than what we're having right now. So we've got to continue to advocate for people with disabilities to get registered to vote, become and be politically active, run for office, be involved in campaigns. Uh, but you think of all the talent that they, the world is denied when there are barriers that exist that prevent people with disabilities from po fully participating in society or fully participating in, uh, in the job market. Perhaps if there's one maybe silver lining that's come out of this, uh, this terrible COVID virus the situation that we've been combating is that uh, we've had to change the way we work and telework is now uh, becomes you know the, the the new norm and, and I hope many of the things that companies have experienced and have you know have had where they've had to adapt because of this the the current circumstances we're in that many many of those lessons will be retained and those practices will be retained and maybe that's going to be a, a catalyst to allow more doors and opportunity to be open to people with disabilities. So Jim, in the past, some of our leaders have gone to great lengths to hide their physical disabilities. I'm thinking of uh, President uh, Franklin Roosevelt, yeah, you know, who did not allow himself to be photographed, um, you know, with his uh, in a wheelchair or or you know with braces uh, on his legs. But I think that the situation has changed today for people such as yourself and. I'm thinking of other members of Congress, uh, some of whom are on the other side of the aisle, who you probably don't agree with at all. But um, I'm, I'm seeing more people with disabilities uh, being elected to Congress. Why do you think that change came about, even though it took such a long time for it to happen? Yeah, I, you know, I think eventually when barriers are brought down and uh, opportunities are presented to people and they want to take advantage of all that life has to uh, to offer. Um, yeah, people are going to put themselves out there as, as candidates. Uh, I know that's happened, you know, on, on different uh, different levels and, and we need to see more people uh, with disabilities putting themselves out there as candidates, working on campaigns as well, because I want Congress to look like society. Uh, just as we want, we want diversity. I think we're stronger when we have uh, diversity as part of the equation, whether it's in the workforce or in politics and in government in the halls of Congress. And so uh, we're, we're seeing more and more diversity and you know, more women are running for office, more people of color are running for office. I want to also see more people with disabilities running for office uh, so that uh, Congress looks like, looks like uh, the, the society we live in. So you're in a new Congress right now in the House with 435 members. Are you meeting some of these new members of Congress with disabilities, or have you not yet had the chance? Uh, no, I have. And we have uh, several different uh, different colleagues who have who have run for office. Uh, I'm thinking one of my colleagues from uh, Florida uh, who uh, served in, in combat as a double amputee. Uh, there's also a new member of Congress uh, who is a uh, paraplegic, and I just uh, met him the other day. And so, um, yeah, th there's... Uh, there, there are more uh, people that are running, but again, it's only uh, it's only a start, and I'd like to see more. So, is it safe to say that you're able to find some common ground, at least on a personal level, even though politically you probably disagree with almost everything that they uh, stand for? I absolutely. 
I, I pride myself, as I said, of being one of the most bipartisan members of Congress. I believe that where there's a will, there's a way that even if you maybe philosophical differences about, you know, the size of government or whether or not government should be active or, or passive, there's, there's always a way to find common ground on something. As I, I've talked about some of my colleagues, I've done that with on cybersecurity or career technical education or disabilities issues. Uh, we can always find common ground. We just have to have that primary focus of wanting to compromise, wanting to find that common ground, and we can do it. I'd like to end with um, a quote, which I which I think was pretty you know profound, but I, maybe you can just talk about it a little bit. That um, you said as a young adult um, trying to find his way in life, that each lost opportunity was a reminder that I'm not like everyone else. And tell us what that means for you. But I think that that quote, many young people can adopt that quote and, and, and really, you know, gain strength from it. You know, there are, there are things clearly that I'm not going to be able to do. And I, and I realize that um, there's an aspect of that I can't control. And, and, and certainly that can be a somewhat of a source of frustration, but also every lost opportunity, you know, if, if I don't go through those doors and at least try, uh, I, I realize that, you know, kind of shame on me for at least not trying to to make a difference. And so, although I, you know, I'm mindful of some other times things I, I, I can't do, the limitations I have, I also don't want to pass up, you know, incredible opportunities to, to make a difference. And I have the ability to make a difference for others, and uh, I don't want to let those opportunities go by. And so uh, I, I try to maximize it wherever, wherever possible on behalf of the people that I represent or people around the, the country that, that find themselves in the same kind of circumstances that I'm And I want to make sure that, uh, that they have the, the opportunity to succeed in every way possible. Well, Jim, I really want to uh, thank you for your service. You've been such an impactful member of Congress, and I think we'll continue to be an impactful member of Congress. And we haven't even talked about your role in cybersecurity and so many other security issues for um, the United States. But um, I know that regarding disabilities, that your work has really led to a change for life of, of in the lives of people with disabilities. As you know, our foundation is, is approaching our advocacy uh, from a completely different industry and, and working with the entertainment industry to show disability more authentically portrayed. And, and I think that will have um, ramifications in how the stigma towards people with disabilities. So I'm happy that, you know, we work on different fronts, but all for the same for the same purpose. Well, I, I really thank you and the, the Ruderman Family Foundation for the work you are doing to uh, to, to change the world for the for the better for people with disabilities. And you're in your own way and your organization is uh, bringing down barriers and opening up those doors that that encourage inclusion. And uh, and I and I want all people to. I have the benefits of fully participating in their community and and uh, realizing their their full potential and going after the dreams and achieving those goals in the same way that I have. Well, Jim, listen, it's it's been a pleasure speaking to you. Um, you're a good friend, and you know more than that, I'm honored to to know you and and to know someone who's making such a difference in the world in in the lives of so many Americans. Thank you, Jim. All Inclusive is a production of the Ruderman Family Foundation. Our key mission is the full inclusion of people with disabilities in all aspects of society. You can find All Inclusive on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, 
Spotify, and Stitcher. To view the show notes, transcripts, or to learn more, go to rudermanfoundation.org slash all-inclusive. Have an idea for a podcast? Be sure to tweet at jruderman.com.